Hey, hey, welcome to Luke 22. Let's get started with verse 1. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The Passover, or the feast of unleavened bread, was approaching. During Passover, the Jews celebrated their freedom from bondage in Egypt. All the Jewish men were supposed to gather in Jerusalem to make their sacrifices and present themselves in the temple. With with such a large crowd, we can see why the Romans were nervous about this feast. Their rulers, King Herod and Pontius Pilate, stayed close by in case of rebellion. This Passover... Israel would cruelly kill the true Passover lamb, Jesus, and he would free us from our bondage to sin. Verses 2-6 through six. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. The religious leaders were trying to find a way to kill Jesus. It needed to be done in a certain way because the people liked him. If it was done incorrectly, the people would probably go against the religious leaders. So they wanted to keep the people at bay. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples. It is interesting that Satan involved himself, probably thinking he was thwarting Jesus. However, through this death, through Jesus' death, he would conquer sin, death, and Satan himself. Judas went to the religious leaders and agreed to betray Jesus for money. So, Judas began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus when he was away from the crowds. Jesus knew Judas would betray him from the beginning, but the other disciples had no idea. This probably means that Judas performed the same tasks as the other disciples. Judas was a very good hypocrite. He tricked many people, maybe even himself. Despite his closeness to the Lord, he never received eternal life. Perhaps he thought Jesus was going to bring the kingdom and this world give the sufficient push, or perhaps he got tired of waiting and sided against Jesus. In either case, Satan was more than willing to help him out. Verses 7 to 13. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So we see Jesus instructed Peter and John to go prepare the Passover. When asked how, remember, this was the busiest time of the year in Jerusalem, Jesus gave them exact instructions. Some argue that it would have been difficult to spot a man carrying a pitcher of water, but carrying a pitcher of water was typically a job for women in those times, so seeing a man doing that would have been pretty rare. 
All came to pass as he had said. All was prepared in that man's guest room for the Passover. At this point, only Jesus, John, and Peter knew where they were going. This probably prevented Judas from betraying Jesus earlier. This was an important time for Jesus, his disciples, and for us. Some wonder how Jesus and his disciples celebrated Passover, yet somehow Jesus also died on Passover, according to John 19.14. Jews marked days in one of two ways, sunset to sunset, or sunrise to sunrise. The first way was the traditional way based on creation, Genesis 1-5. The other was implemented by Romans, but had a biblical occurrence before the Romans, Genesis 8-22. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke used the Jewish way and John used the Roman way, there is no contradiction. Verses 14-16 to 16. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When the time had come for the Passover, they all sat at the table. Jesus reminded them of his impending suffering, but also told them how he had longed to eat this Passover with them. These men had given up everything to be his disciples. This would be his final Passover before he suffered. It also seems like this would be the last Passover. Jesus instituted a new celebration that day, a new covenant, a new promise, and he would not celebrate another feast until the kingdom of God. This is probably referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb that's found in Revelation 19. Jesus saw beyond suffering to glory. John 13, 1-20 says that during this time, Jesus took a towel and washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. The God of the universe cleansed his disciples' feet, his students' feet. Verses 17 to 20. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus institutes the new covenant here with the Lord's Supper, or we call it communion. It is an act during which those taking it can remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid for our sins. It is to be done as an act of remembrance. It's not a magical act where the elements become Jesus' actual physical body and blood. The bread remains bread and the drink remains drink. A transformation would be unnecessary and is actually contradictory to the Bible. Hebrews tells us he died once for all of humanity. If we needed him to continue sacrificing himself, it would never end and the verse would be false. Communion is also not a part of salvation. It is simply a time where believers remember Christ's sacrifice. The Lord's Supper causes us to look in various directions. We must look inside because the Lord's Supper must be taken with a clean heart. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 32. Before we partake of the supper, pray, examine your heart, ask for forgiveness, and confess your sins. 
Now, communion also causes us to look around because it shows us that we are one body as a church. Communion is taken with other believers, usually in the context of a church, other same-minded Christians that want to glorify God with their lives. These elements were common food in that time and were frequent reminders that Jesus paid it all with his body and blood. So we look up. Both his body and his blood were needed for the sacrifice. The Lord's Supper causes us to look to the past with adoration and gratitude for what Christ did for us. It also encourages us to look to the future because he is coming again. Verses 21 to 23. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Jesus made the announcement that he would soon be betrayed by someone at the table. They all questioned each other and wondered who it was. Later, Jesus sends Judas out to finish his betrayal, and the rest of the disciples thought he was getting more supplies. No one suspected Judas in the least. God was sovereign in his plan for Jesus, yet Judas freely made his decision to betray Jesus. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, but he was giving Judas another opportunity to repent by not immediately identifying Judas as the traitor. God's sovereignty does not cancel out human free will, which is a decision and its responsibility, but he does use our free will for the completion of his plan. Verses 24 to 25. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Now the night before Jesus' death, the disciples fought over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Such incredible silliness, yet so much like us. Jesus had just told them he would be betrayed, but they were focused on themselves. Jesus explained to them that they were thinking like the world. The world considers richest one who sits at the head of the table and has the most power to be the greatest. The greatest person uses his power only for his own benefit. Verses 26 to 27. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. In God's kingdom, the greatest is the servant. This is a reversal from the world's way of thinking, an upside-down kingdom. Jesus was and is the greatest in the kingdom, yet he stooped that very night to the job of the lowest servant by cleaning their feet. Verses 28 to 30. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. After the reprimand, Jesus reminded them of the rewards awaiting them. The disciples had been with Jesus throughout his ministry and stuck to him. They would also go through many trials and persecutions after Jesus left. They had been faithful. They would eat at Jesus' table 
and sit on thrones to judge Israel in the coming kingdom. Why is this important? Did you know that God will reward the faithful? While good works do not grant us salvation, God will reward us for our faithfulness to Him in this life. Yet another hope is waiting for us in heaven, all because of Jesus' sacrifice. Verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. Jesus reveals to Simon Peter that Satan wanted his soul. Satan hates us and wants us to fall in our faith. Satan wants Christians to be useless and the unsaved to remain unsaved. Jesus prayed for Simon, or Peter, and told Simon that when he turned back to the right way, he was to strengthen the others. This indicated that Simon would be going the wrong way for a while. Either out of pride or just speaking before thinking, Simon responded against Jesus' words, saying he would die for Jesus. But Jesus knew the truth. That very night, Peter would deny Jesus three times before the morning came. I can only imagine the thoughts of the other disciples. Now they had knowledge that one of their own would betray Jesus. And Peter, their spokesman or leader, would deny the master three times. Was there hope for the rest of them? This night would be one filled with betrayal and denial. Yet, they could be encouraged. Jesus had prayed for their faith, and Peter would be able to lead again after he returned. Verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Probably to encourage his disciples, Jesus reminded them that he had sent them out before with nothing. We remember in Luke 9, that was verse 3. And yet they lacked nothing. Jesus would be leaving, but this time they needed to pack their bags with money, clothes, and sword for protection. The disciples answered Jesus, saying they had two swords. Jesus replied it would be enough. Some have interpreted this in strange ways, but here are the two best that we found. Some believe it was a rebuke of the disciples to stop speaking of swords at that time, and some believe that Jesus was simply saying that two swords were enough for the twelve of them for the situations that they might encounter. In either case, the disciples missed their cue again. Jesus was on his way to the cross that very night to die and to be counted as a sinner. Isaiah fifty-three twelve. Verses 39 to 40. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
It seems like going to the Mount of Olives to pray was a frequent custom for Jesus and his disciples. Interestingly, this mountain was full of olive gardens. Uh, John 18, 1 and 3 shows us this. Jesus, the last Adam, and we can see that comparison in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, would have the final stream of temptations begin in the garden, just like the first Adam. And we'll see about that in Genesis 1. Yet, Jesus will succeed where the first Adam failed. Verses 41 and 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. When they arrived, Jesus asked eight to pray, then took Peter, James, and John further into the garden and asked them to pray. You can see in Mark fourteen thirty-two through 33 he then went about a stone's throw away and prayed to the Father. He prayed for release from the cup of suffering that was coming his way. It was a cup of physical suffering. His body would be torn to shreds. It was a cup of emotional suffering. He would be abandoned by all people, even God. But mostly, it was a cup of spiritual suffering. He was about to take on the weight of all the sin of humanity and face the wrath of God for that sin while being totally innocent of any crime. It would be the first time he experienced sin. Some have compared this metaphorical cup to the actual cup used on the Day of Atonement. Just to clarify, it's not his own sin, it's our sin, but the first time he would experience the weight, the separation, the guilt of it. So, um... Back to the metaphorical cup used on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, Israel would sacrifice animals for the cleansing of Israel's sin. Towards the end, a cup of lamb's blood would be offered on the Ark of the Covenant. While Jesus fervently prayed that there be another way, he kept his focus clear. What was important was the will of God. Doing God's will was his priority. Just to clarify, Day of Atonement... Uh, Ark of the Covenant, we will get more into that when we study Exodus, Leviticus, but we will get into those. Verses 43 to 44. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. An angel appeared and encouraged Jesus. Luke is the only author to mention this out of the Gospels. When he prayed, Jesus began to sweat blood. When under extreme stress, our sweat glands actually release blood instead of sweat. This is called hematidrosis. While here, we note that Jesus returns to his disciples once. In Matthew 26, 36-46 and Mark 14, 32-42, Jesus goes to them three times, each time finding them asleep. This shows us a complementary view. Luke focused on the one occasion, while Matthew and Mark are showing us a more full view. Verses 45 and 46. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
When Jesus returned to the disciples, he found them asleep from sorrow. Many believe they were depressed from his teaching about his death. Others think it was from the impending betrayal and denial of the other disciples. In either case, they were asleep when they were told to be in vigilant prayer. Now, why is this important? Jesus told them to be in prayer to avoid temptation. Did you know prayer does the same for us? When you fall in a temptation and the option of sinning is placed before you, pray immediately. Take yourself out of the situation and into the presence of God. God is faithful not to give us a temptation we cannot conquer, but that power comes from Him alone. Verses 47 and 48. While He was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? While he was still warning the disciples, the crowd led by Judas arrived. Judas approached Jesus and kissed him, the most affectionate action to complete the most vile act in the history of man, betray Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus questioned Judas with knowledge of his act. Judas had not told Jesus the signal was a kiss, but Jesus knew. The secret sign, quote-unquote, was not lost on the Son of Man. Verses 49-51 When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. After Jesus' words, the disciples grew nervous. They were so nervous that they asked Jesus if they could attack. Before Jesus responded, Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, a servant of the high priest. We get those names from John 18, verse 10. Peter was probably on edge, remembering how Jesus said he would deny him three times. Jesus commanded the disciples to stop, and even had compassion on Malchus and healed his ear. This had been planned since the dawn of time, and no amount of fighting would stop God's plan. Verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus then confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Jesus asked why they needed a crowd to capture him. Jesus was not a robber nor a murderer. He was open in public places during the day, but the reason was obvious. They were scared of the people. Because of this fear, they arrested him at night. It was the time for Jesus to begin the road to sacrifice on the cross. The arrest probably happened around 2.30 a.m. Judging by the following events, the arrest was illegal because it was done by night and was done because of a hired accuser. Why is this important? Which one of the characters do you find yourself most like? Pretending to be a Christian like Judas or a religious leader? Perhaps you are fighting for your own will like Peter? I hope you are most like Jesus, submitting your life to the will of God, even though it is sometimes very hard to do. Verses 54 to 55. 
Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. Jesus had three Jewish trials, first by Annas, the former high priest, from John eighteen twelve to 13 then by Caiaphas, Matthew twenty six fifty seven, and finally by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court of priests, scribes, and religious men, Luke twenty two sixty six through seventy one. The Sanhedrin proclaimed him guilty and sent him to the Romans. Probably during this second Jewish trial, we see Peter's story. Peter had followed Jesus through the crowds from a distance. Peter gained entrance to Caiaphas' court through John, John 18, 18. Well in the courtyard on that cold night, he sat next to the fire to get warm. Verses 56 to 62. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The first to get Peter to deny was a servant girl. Peter responded, saying he did not know Jesus and left the fire. We see that in Matthew twenty six seventy one. Peter denied Jesus another time before some other men. Finally, many accused Peter of being a Galilean, and so some believe that he began to curse like a sailor, so to speak, and tell everyone that he did not know Jesus, because that was their vocabulary. A Galilean was known for his foul mouth, and at that instant, the cock crowed. Some believe the cock that crowed was an actual rooster. Others, including me, believe it to have been the watchman in Jerusalem. These men were called cocks, and they would blow a horn or crow when it was time to change watches. When the cock crowed, Jesus probably was being transferred to the next court session and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Peter ran out of the court weeping bitterly, probably in shame that he had denied his master. Now, why is this important? All of us sin. And just like Peter, we betray Jesus. But remember, Peter was forgiven after his repentance. There is no sin too great for God to forgive, except the rejection of his son. We can always choose to go to God for his forgiveness, no matter our past, during this life. The question becomes, what is your choice? Verses 63 to 64. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody, mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many things against him, blaspheming. 
After the trial before Caiaphas, the men who held Jesus blindfolded him and beat him, telling him to prophesy who had hit him. They were mocking his claim to God. Despite the fact that he had not been declared guilty, the soldiers beat him. Through all of this, Jesus remained silent. What does that mean for us? This is how we need to act in the face of our enemies. We do not retaliate. We simply trust God to mete out vengeance in his time. Verses 66 to 71. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led away, they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of his testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Early the next morning, the Jews held Jesus' final Jewish trial. This was one led by many of the Sanhedrin, which again was a court made of religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, scribes. They were the official Jewish judicial body, their, their supreme court, so to speak. The main issue of the trial was brought to life. Was Jesus the Messiah or not? Jesus knew the hearts of the men present. He knew that it was futile to try to convince them of the truth. He had said he and the Father were one in public, but they had not believed. He had asked them questions, trying to engage them, but they did not answer. So, Jesus answered as directly as he could. He was the Son of Man. This was a direct quote from Daniel 7, 13-14, which calls the Son of Man one who would come from the clouds and have dominion over all of mankind. He also quotes Psalm 110.1, which says he would reign on his throne with his enemies as his footstool. After the events that finished the week, Jesus would be exactly that, conqueror over death and sin, and still God of the universe. He would be the only one worthy to save mankind, becoming mankind, dying at the hands of mankind to save mankind. What an awesome graceful God we serve. The Sanhedrin still needed the clarifier, so they asked a more direct question, are you the Son of God? Jesus answered, he was. And there, the council decided that Jesus was blaspheming. But the Jews could not carry out capital punishment or death sentence on their own, John 18, 31-32. So, they proceeded to take him to the Romans.